Hey there, this is Harry Caruso and John Michael Tamburo from Car Wash Advisory, and we have a very fun topic today, which is that of what kills deals in the M&A car wash industry. How, how much time do we have here today? We have a lot of time here. This is a very uh, highly anticipated and nuanced topic, which is going to be fun, but there's a lot to go over here, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of these are becoming more prevalent just because of market conditions, right? Buyers are being forced to look at them. Uh, whereas before, maybe they were a little bit more negligent, um, but it's awesome. And it's great because it gives, you know, precedence. And it, at least for me, I look at it as a way to learn going forward. And I think a lot of these things are things that are preventative. Um, and if people can, you know, get ahead of it and, and look at them before they're ready to sell, then there shouldn't be any problems when you're actually ready to transact. Sure, sure. But the M&A space inherently, right, John Michael, is very, very uncertain on a micro and macro basis. And for I think sure. it's very important for our listeners to paint that 2023 has been a very unforgiving environment for mergers and acquisitions across the board. And that yeah. goes far beyond that of the car wash industry. And then if you layer in on top of that, the level of unprecedented consolidation this industry has seen, it becomes even that much more so incrementally unforgiving. For sure. So all of these factors that typically attribute to a deal potentially falling through or not closing are all but enhanced. And yeah. the magnitude in which they occur and, and the frequency at which they occur is is higher than should be expected. But yeah. it's a wonderful time to kind of take a look back at these and say, well, which of these, to John Michael's point, can be prevented? How can they be prevented? And what are the red flags that one could look for to say, there's likely a chance that this deal does not happen. For sure. For sure. And I think a good place to start is one that we've experienced a lot of this year is uncommitted buyers, right? Buyers that are, you know, putting forward an LOI. They're saying all the right things. They're schmoozing, very interested, love the opportunity. They're confident they can close. And then they don't, right? And sometimes it comes out of left field. Sometimes things are great. And I always say things are great until they're not. And that's the reality is that they're great. You know, you go into a long weekend or something, and on Monday, they don't want it anymore, right? So I guess, is that preventable or is it not preventable? Yeah, what a good one. So I think that is the by far the biggest through line in all mergers and acquisitions is it's pretty easy to put together a indication of interest or a letter of intent or a, yes, we do want to buy your business. Yeah. That's all well and good, but are you actually going to close on it? And if you are, are you going to go ahead and do what's commonly referred to as retrading mm -hmm. or renegotiating later in the process. To what extent is the intent and the stated intent actually genuine yep. and have some bite to it? And I think that there are many ways that this can be prevented. Goodness knows we as a company take it as our own prerogative to dive deep and iterate through different checks, balances, systems, and structure to make sure that we have the highest closing rate via offer to close as possible. But I, I think, John Michael, what's really, really important is as we go through these waves of the cycle, right? And this is more idiosyncratic and leaning on that of the car wash industry specifically, and not just mergers and acquisitions as a whole. If we focus on that part of heightened activity over the last three years, with heightened activities, with unprecedented levels of attraction from institutional buyers and investors alike, comes more fluff on a proportional basis by way of buyers than in a more depressed or downward directional market. For sure. And I think we're seeing that. I think so. And I, and I think, I, you know, the thing that I always like to say is, how do you prevent this, right? And in some scenarios, you 
can't, but in a lot of scenarios you can't, right? It's vetting your buyers ahead of time, making sure you've worked with them, or at least you ask the right questions before we move forward with them. And then the other is, which is my favorite, is you want to push them as far along as fast as possible. You want to get them to spend money, time, resources, and as fast as possible. And at that point, you can usually see some red flags pretty early on, right? And sometimes, unfortunately, you do have to push them down the road a little bit before you can look at it objectively and say, mm, I'm not feeling good about this, right? It's time to change late. So I think there's there's a lot you can do to prevent it, for sure, to your point. Um, but there definitely are scenarios where it, it happens, and it happens to the, some of the best groups, right? And it's tough, but it's the nature of the industry, really. Right. And then, and John Michael, dissecting that even further, this topic or this causality of lack of true intent by a buyer can be dissected a million different ways. And it really should be because there's so many subsects as to what the driving cause and the impetus of this lack of follow through is really being driven by. Mm. For goodness sakes, right? It could be a co-investment that that fund had if we're dealing with a financial sponsor group in yeah. a totally unrelated industry yeah. that has maybe underperformed and therefore caused some sort of restriction in the outflow of new investments yeah. for that fund. That has nothing to do with the car washes at hand. That has nothing to do with the car wash industry. And that has nothing to do with M&A. That has to do yeah. with portfolio companies of a specific financial sponsor underperforming in whatever subsect of an industry they operate. Yeah. Right. So there, there's a plethora of reasons under this larger encompassing factor of buyer's lack of intent and true intent to follow through. But to your point, I think the most important thing is you force action as soon as possible, as much as possible. For sure. And that comes in understanding where's the money coming from, from an equity and debt perspective. Yep. Right. What is the investment thesis here? And heads up for those yeah. listening, if you can't come up with a feasible investment thesis, regardless of whether or not you agree with it, yeah. there's no the through side as to why somebody could rationalize a deal making sense. Hence, somebody comes in and tells you they're going to pay 25 times for three car washes. <laughs> Uh, it won't close because it never should have closed and it never should close moving forward. Absolutely. It makes no sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a huge level of just common sense that has to be applied in true objectivism that is needed in evaluating offers, but also making sure, to your point, that they're spending as much as possible and doing as much as possible as early on as possible. So you're saying that they like the space isn't a good investment thesis? Because I get that one a lot. So Right. I think I would go off on a, on a tirade here if left to my own devices by way of why I think thematic investing in the car wash industry within the United States is a disaster waiting to happen. Thematic investing is very dangerous and a very, uh, very, very operator dependent, geographic dependent, and competitive landscape dependent yeah. subsect of an industry. Definitely. So I'll refrain from going on my, my rant, but let, let's switch gears a little bit. Yeah, what let's else do we about, got? Let's talk about some wild card factors that we've seen kill deals. And some of these that we're going to be talking about, for those who are listening, some of these are things that we've seen firsthand. Some of, some of them are things that we knew would kill a deal yeah. that we prevented moving forward and therefore decided to not transact before even embarking on that selling journey. Yeah. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind that I think is very far and few between in terms of conversations had about is that of incorrect or illegitimate labor setups. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that you, I mean, you wouldn't think of it. Right. And again, just to be clear, it doesn't mean you're necessarily doing something legal, right? It could be as simple as your hiring process and your record keeping 
is maybe it's good for you, but it might not be one in line with a mandate of a private equity group or a large strategic, right? So it, again, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong, right? It's just a matter of, you know, maybe there's certain things that you're overlooking that you can't, or maybe there's a third party that should be checking employees before you hire them and you're not spending the money to get that third party. You're just looking at their license and signing them up and your, you know, taxes are getting paid through the state and everything and you assume everything's good, but that doesn't always work, right? No, it doesn't. But he, here's what I think is most important, John Michael, and I agree with everything you're saying, but I think what is so very important is that none of these things that we're talking about, and I'm sure we'll get to the topics of uh, potentially not reporting all of your cash income, so on and so forth. These are common denominators in small businesses as a whole, as well as the car wash subspect in a higher concentration. None of these prevent somebody from selling their business. None of these are poison pills for the viewers, right? That yeah. are going to prevent a transaction from happening on the whole. Here's what they do. They prevent and preclude certain buyer types as well as individual buyers within those types from being actionable purchasing parties. Very well said. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's commonly confused. So it, let's say that you don't have the best hiring practices. And goodness knows we're not here to say, well, why don't you? That's not what we're here to talk about, John Michael. We're talking about given you know, the sunk cost and the situation that an owner and operator is in, what do they do and what can kill a deal? Well, here's what can kill a deal. Being transparent, truthful, and upfront about any mishaps or peculiarities of your business ahead of time. Yeah. And these are things people will know, right? This None of this should be a surprise. And you know, if, if we ask the question, is there anything we should know about your business? Nine out of 10 times, you can fire off all of them that we should look at. Most right? sure. So it's not, yeah, we're not looking for you to come up with some, you know, trivial buried secret or something. These are all things that you, you'll know if you're doing something wrong or if you if there's something you think might be concerned, chances are it, it will be and you should at least let someone know, right? Right. And what, and what does this do, right? What does this sort of less than optimal setups or characteristics of a business do, do, do they don't preclude your ability to sell but if you have a trusted and a experienced and equipped intermediary whether a investment bank a broker an advisor right they, they they really what they should be able to do is prevent getting dragged through the mud with buyers who these types of characteristics or specific characteristics would have prevented them from actually consummating a purchase uh, from the get-go. Yeah. Let's not waste everybody's time. Let's not predicate a sale process on false promises, on lack of information, and on misrepresenting things. For sure. And and here's the truth of the matter. Maybe you do reduce your actionable buyer group down. And, and, and this applies for single sites as well as multi-sites, right? Just, uh, just as there are mezzanine-type junior credit funds that specialize in less secured, less credit-worthy lending opportunities as opposed to a AAA-rated credit, uh, there are private equity groups yeah, that have the appetite that have the appetite for digging in a bit deeper with expectation of higher return but a different risk-reward profile that would absolutely allow and facilitate a transaction to occur even with these sort of characteristics. Yeah, and, and the characteristics do truly vary buyer by buyer, right? Which is why, as you said, the most important thing is understanding the situation right ahead of time, right? Because it's just making sure that you're focusing your efforts to the right people, but also making sure that these issues are addressed preemptively because it's a lot easier to solve and resolve if you know on day one than if you know on day 90. Right? Absolutely. And you know what I think is another great one, John Michael, that we've seen time and time again is thinking that a 
when you go ahead and you embark on a sale process, there's a new site coming in down the road, and you for some reason are under the misconception that the buyer, whoever that will end up being, yeah. will never find out. Yeah. But if, Meanwhile, the permit's filed, and it's on the city records. Yeah. Surely. <laughs> and if, and if I, I, yeah. I can assure listeners of one thing. It's that this will not do you any benefit. It will come out in the wash, no pun intended. And in fact, any potential buyers who would be comfortable with that landscape and knowing that they're coming in may no longer be because at this point you've diminished the fidelity and the trust of everything else that's being represented in the process. Yeah. And that's why it's always, it's not always the information at hand. It's the way that it's presented and perceived more than anything. Right. And yeah, it's not, I mean, we see washes across the street from each other all the time and we see lots of qualified buyers that say, great, let's get to work. We'll, we'll beat them. No problem. So it's, it's the way that it comes up is what you're saying. Absolutely. I want to talk a bit more about a more nuanced uh, aspect of this whole deal-making conundrum that many are faced with in terms of multi-site owners. What we see very often is there's a black sheep of the group, right? Maybe we've got four express exteriors and one self-serve end bay, or maybe we have one mini tunnel that's underperforming, or or maybe there's one that doesn't fit the mold. Do you see that often killing otherwise go forward transactions on them and a standpoint i think again i think it, it depends the way it's presented right i think we've seen people that say hey all these sites are doing x y and z and you know they get evaluation and they move forward and or at least you know people move forward on their presumption that it's the same right and again it's that misrepresentation right it's okay to have a black sheep but you know let, let's call a spade a spade here right and in that case you know, oftentimes we find there's actually a more creative solution, right? It, it sometimes makes sense that, you know, maybe the black sheep is only a black sheep to this group of buyers, right? Maybe it's perfect for another subset of buyers, right? So at that point, it's a matter of looking at the portfolio and maybe dissecting it, right? Maybe this is two transactions or three transactions, and that's how you maximize your exit as opposed to doing one and trying to, you know, force the pill down a buyer that has no interest in the throat or even worse, getting attributed zero value right? Like it, it doesn't make sense, right? So I, I think it's important to understand it. I don't know if it necessarily kills deals. I think it's a matter of making sure that you understand from the get-go and, and again, communicate it effectively to people. Sure. Sure. Let's 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 talk about one of the, the hot button topics in terms of non-cash consideration and offers changing over time. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, on the non-cash consideration portion, you know, that that's... That's tough, right? And I think that that's where a lot of buyers, uh, people assume that because they know their business is doing X volume or X number of year, they assume that everyone can attribute the same level of value towards it, right? And I think that's where, you know, you're not wrong to a degree, but you have to understand that, you know, a lot of these buyers institutions, they answer to someone else, right? They answer to usually an, an uninformed, you know, educated third party, but maybe not educated in the space, Right. So for you to go to someone and get them to swallow a pill that's, hey, 20 percent of the revenue is, you know, on this type of business. Right. I mean, we see it. I guess the, the easiest example is uh, express tunnels with self-serves. Right. Expresses are awesome because there's a POS system. There's car counts. The cash is all recorded. Ninety nine percent of the time, everything's credit card based. So it's very, very trackable. Right. Through various you know data points, you can triangulate it with usually ninety nine percent confidence. Well, what happens with the self-serve portion, right? And a lot of times we see owners and they say, well, hey, the self-serve generates 90000 a year, right? It's quarters, it's cash. Um, you know, maybe there's air compressors, maybe there's 25-cent coin vacuums, maybe there's vending machines on site. 
And like, it's not nothing. Like this is money that's being applied a multiple upwards of eight, nine, 10, 11 times, right? So when you have a percentage, whether it's 10% or 20%, not all buyers are okay swallowing that, right? Some buyers, they have a, a tolerance level and they say, hey, if there's, you know, 5% of the total, you know, I guess business value you're claiming is off book, we'll we'll take your word for it, right? We'll eat that, right? John Michael, how about though the the usual suspects by way of holdbacks on close? Yeah, we have proposed rollover equity, seller notes. Yeah, uh, how often do you see without proper vetting a financial institution, let alone individual buyers, which are a bit of a different story, but it's still yeah. somewhat prevalent, going ahead and moving forward with the transaction while all the while going ahead and knowing that they're going to actually switch from yeah. all cash consideration to, to none. all of a sudden we have $20 million of holdback yeah. on cash for two years. Or we have terms that are uh, seemingly changing out of left field, out of nowhere. Yeah, the, the holdback is the biggest one because every I think every buyer tries that, right? There's always a large percentage. You know, if it's a, I mean, we've seen $100 million transactions where the holdback was a million bucks. And and that, again, those numbers to me, they make sense, right? The, the intention of a holdback is for protection, right? And so that people are comfortable. But when you have buyers doing deals and it's a $5 million transaction, and all of a sudden at the end, like you said, they say, we want a $2 million holdback. Well, what for? It's unreasonable, right? And I think that does, it, it does kill deals, right? It, it's something that, and it's tough because it's one of those things that, I mean, as you know, those conversations don't usually come up until the end, ah, right? That's, and that's that's where it kills deals. That's right? a problem. So for viewers listening, what we try our very hardest in doing and we've gotten very proficient at is forcing these issues ahead of time. So yeah. There is no universe where you should ever be moving forward with an indication of interest or a letter of intent without having a clear, explicit conversation with written follow-up as to what the expectations are by way of a non-cash consideration, hold yaks, reps and warranties, all this stuff that comes back to kill these deals by way of nuanced deal structure, covenants, consideration types, purchase price allocations. Yeah. Purchase price allocations is a wonderful one. Yeah. Yes. So many times. Get this stuff discussed ahead of time. And I'll tell you a trick yeah. for the listeners. If whoever that counterparty is, whether it be a large private equity group, a family office, or an individual is unwilling to entertain explicit conversation on those specifics beforehand, they're not a real buyer. Yeah. For goodness sakes, that conversation just gets more in depth the further along you go. So to your point with all of these, the, the, the biggest thing you can do is get ahead of them. Be Definitely. explicit about it. Yeah. And I think the thing to realize too is that as much as everyone, you know, they put in fancy words and they make these to- topics overly complex just just because that's i mean that's the nature of finance right is to try and make it you know untouchable for the the average listener right i think what's really important to understand is these aren't complicated conversations right we're not we're not doing rocket science here after an LOI it's as simple as hopping on the phone and saying hey i have five questions for you right what do you guys intend to do for holdback Right? How are you going to think about purchase price allocations? What do you expect for reps and warranties, if any expectations? And a lot of times these are like yes, no questions, or they can give you a very rough ballpark answer, but it's enough to make the decision and to see if it's within your comfort level. Right. And John Michael, I'll be honest, I think the biggest problem agent in the entire equation, the reason why deals don't close so often is because of the people sitting in our seats. Yeah. The intermediaries, so many intermediaries are so very concerned about 
making things work yeah. today yeah. in terms of that next step without any uh, foreseeing or a greater picture in mind in terms of will it actually close? Yeah. Uh, speaking to the owners and operators out there, the last thing you want to subject yourself to is getting dragged through the mud with over promises and under deliveries yeah. time and time again while going through this process of selling. Yeah. For goodness sakes, you owe it to yourself to vet the parties properly and to do all that's within your power to prevent a deal from being dragged along and then not closing in the end. Definitely. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's a lot of time, time and money for owners to commit to. And, you know, we've seen it all too many times, you know, a, a lot of times these groups, they go through these extenuating circumstances of dragging out processes, but it's strategic, right? They know that the longer they keep these people on the hook for, you know, after eight months of work as a seller, are you still as likely to transact or are you willing to walk away when you've invested so much time and money? Right. And it's sort of a dilemma that, you know, I, I don't want to say that every buyer is doing this, but it's it's definitely been used before. And we've seen circumstances where people get taken advantage of and they get to a point where they throw their hands in there and they say, ah, it's just been so much work. I, I just want it done. Right. And it's again, how do you prevent that? Asking the questions early and not being afraid to. Yeah, there's no or you have to be unabashed and asking reasonable, qualified factors. Right. Questions yeah. Ahead of time. Well, and I think, too, it's almost like there's a false sense of security when you get that LOI. Oh, for right? sure. Right. It's so exciting. You see you see the numbers, you see the terms and you're like, this is awesome. It's everything I wanted. But and letter of intent is just that it's a letter of they intend to move forward on this. But it doesn't mean it's all encompassing because if it was, it would be binding. There would be, you know, a signature field and there wouldn't be this three, four month process after they present it, right? Don't you can sign and move on. I'll take a controversial stance and say, it, and maybe you'll agree with me. I honestly think that that LOI is worth less than the piece of paper it's printed on if it's <laughs> blank, because at least if yeah. it's blank, you could go print something of value on it. Well, I mean, realistically, you know, this is something I think we do a good job on, especially because we get in front of these questions. But real, how often have we seen LOIs as is 100% be that of like 100% one-to-one with the purchase agreement? Never. It's, it's never. And it's not not the first version, John. There's no way. Because I'm yeah. kicking back that LOI 10 times until I get my purchase price allocations on them. Right. These discussions should be had. You don't marry yeah. somebody not knowing if they have a crazy family. Yeah. And, and again, you don't, and it's not even, you don't have to hold people to the exact amount because a lot of times you as a seller will want to talk to an accountant, right? And that takes time. And, and you know, sometimes you don't want to drag on signing an LOI because it, it's, you start off on the wrong foot. But that doesn't mean you can't say, hey, here's the breakdown. These are the rough range of percentages of how we're going to distribute the purchase price. Do you agree to that? Sure. Because at least you have a basis. And it's a lot harder to retrade when there's some type of framework, right? And I think that's where it's missed, right? So I know we spent a lot of time on that one, but I think that is one of the most important ones. And it's something that it's because it's overlooked by 99% of people. Could not agree more, John Michael, could not. Uh, switching gears and maybe trying to bastardize the financial sponsor groups in the space yep. a little bit less because don't get us wrong, listeners, there are some awesome private equity sponsors out there and they come in all shapes, sizes, forms, colors, everything you can imagine. And some of these guys are just super, right? They really Definitely. are. But for every great one, there's an awful one. And yeah. To, yeah. Just knowing what to look for here is so very important. Now, switching gears a bit to the stuff that's less uh, investor buyer specific, mm and less under the control of a process, including that of the seller and the advisors involved, yep. if any, what about the factors that kill deals that are macroeconomic based? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, what's the biggest thing we saw this year happen, right? It, I mean, arguably would be rates. And I think this this affected, you know, like you said, not institutions. Again, if they're a good if they're a good private equity group or a good family office, there is a thesis and there's a plan and there's, you know, they, they built this into their modeling. So it's not like it would break a deal. But as an individual, you know, when you have rates quoted from, you know, I would say anywhere from eight percent nine percent jump up to what did we see eleven and a half to thirteen and a half i think i mean sba 7a loans we were talking it was like six percent 12 to 18 months ago and now we're at it's like 12 13 yeah Yeah. oh it's absurd and then that'll kill the cash flow so from a buyer perspective the economic feasibility of changing your always keep this in mind right when an individual buyer is looking at prospectively buying a car wash whether it be a single site or multi-sites you have to think of it through the lens of this person very well may be giving up a you know a, uh, a w-2 job yep right for this income and for goodness yeah. sakes post debt service the business has to be capable of producing an income level which makes it attractive to them yeah to trade that out for yeah, no one, no one's going to trade that out, put a bunch of money online, take risk in a field and a business they've never done before to make less money than they're currently making. And right? the debt will eat that up in a heartbeat. As well, exactly. And then from the institutional side, and I think this is the more enigmatic, interest rates have just as large of an impact. And what people fail to realize is one of the things that the car wash industry, and everybody listening will know this, affords its owners and operators that is so very different than 99% of other industries is the level of margins yeah. capable of these businesses. Like, yeah. No other business has 60% adjusted EBITDA margins. Yeah. There's a lot of wiggle room. It's to really say the least. easy. A lot yeah. of wiggle room. And there's, it's really easy to lose sight of the fact yeah. that just because we have this proverbial, you know, wildly large range of cushion. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean that the private equity sponsors, even though a 400 basis point increase in interest rates don't sink the ship by way of free cash flow. Yeah. What it very well can do is it can go ahead and bump them out of an investment mandate criteria by yep. way of IRR, expected return, whatever sort of metric they're using. Right. Well, even even on the individual basis, right? Just to put it in a perspective, you know, if you have a business that maybe you've been running well, maybe it's not the most efficient business, it's doing all right. You know, maybe your margins are on the lower side of things, maybe you're only at 20, 30 percent. Again, it's great for you because the business is paid for. But to ask an individual who's never done this to come in to, uh, you know, maybe an underperforming car wash business and then to have to go and get debt, that's, I mean, I remember an example. We had a buyer beginning of the year. He was looking into it, you know, got some rough end quotes, uh, SBA, like you said, you know, six, seven percent range. And towards the end of this year, he came forward again and it was now at twelve and a half percent. And it was like he was like, well, then I can only buy a business of this criteria and at that point, it actually bumped the amount of cash he had to put down on the business. Sure. So now what's happening is they're, it, this is their strike zone and they're, they're here with, with their investment capabilities. So it's, it, it kills the deal, not because they don't want it. They don't love it because they're not willing to pay a premium. They want to do all those things. They physically cannot, right? And it's not just the institutions, but it's on, it's, it, I think it hits home a lot more to individuals. At least that's what we saw this year. It's more tangible. And I want to use this, yes. John Michael, because so we've talked a bit about the specifics of a car wash business, whether multi or single site, that could be deterrence from a deal closing. Mm. We've talked a bit about the buyer universe inherently in some instances being lackluster by way of intent to actually close the deal. Yep. And now we've talked about the macroeconomic factors that can impact 
both individual buyers and institutionals yeah. alike yeah. that are a bit more so nebulous and out of our control. And I want to shift to one last deal killer as we're talking here. Mm -hmm. And this is the worst of the worst, if you ask me personally, John Michael, which is that of the the group think that exists <laughs> in a given industry is something that cannot be understated. Yeah. You can't. You cannot. So regardless of whether or not the numbers still pencil, regardless of whether or not the industry still makes sense, and regardless of whether or not it's as attractive as ever before, mm -hmm. one of a one, two, three of the main players in an industry pulling back the rates yeah. can have a inordinately consequential as well as enigmatic effect yeah. on the remaining buyer universe in terms of evaluating new investment and entrance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I guess the easiest and most tangible example, because people can look this up, is look at Mr. Carwash this year, right? They're the, they're the, they're really the leaders, right? Regardless of anyone's opinion on them, they're the leaders. They, they did it first. They are the precedent. They are the benchmark that everyone refers to. Look at the M&A activity that they did this year, right? It, it's it's shifted, right? And, and they, they almost set a precedent, whether they intentionally mean to or not, of saying, we're going this route for whatever reason. And yeah, I mean, that's what we've seen. A lot of buyers have shifted gear because of it, right? Yeah, and I, with Mr. Mr. Carwash has done more for this industry than any other single company that is still in existence today. And for sure. That's, you know, maybe there are some that rival it in terms of magnitude, but certainly none that surpass. And I think yeah. everybody in the industry would agree. Of course. Uh, with that said, I think Mr. fumbled their IPO on several regards by way of investor relations. And it's not to go to say, you know, we don't make mistakes and everybody doesn't make mistakes. And, you know, the public markets will become smart to a certain extent and equilibrium will prevail in the end, whether that be a go private transaction, a refinancing of large scale, or potentially just accretion to what somebody would believe to be steady state value. Yep. But Mr. did, despite the fumbles that maybe had from an investor relations perspective upon going public, they did do a good job, in my opinion, John Michael, of conveying to the public that they were making a absolutely you know, monumental shift from yeah. M&A to Greenfields. And they did that specifically with reasoning around M&A has gotten too expensive. Yeah. And for goodness sakes, it was. It made perfect sense when they did it. They picked the lane and they were one of the first to do it. And then everyone said, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Like you said, there's a group think, right? And again, I'm not saying it's not unwarranted. It, it makes, again, I would, if I was in the boat, I would make the same decision, right? Because it just makes sense. But it's, you know, what about the decisions that don't make sense? So that, I, I say right? this quite often, John Michael, and I know you and I talk about this from our past lives in terms of larger scale investment banking outside of the car wash industry. And that is, you know, you have to give some acknowledgement to the fact that on the institutional side of things, People are far more concerned about not making the wrong decision yep. than they are about making the right decision. For sure. And personally, for, for the listeners, from my personal experience in past lives, uh, this was a inordinate frustration of mine. And it was very difficult, but you have to recognize it. And whether or not you are one that falls in that category or not, it has to at least be acknowledged. Yeah. So regardless of car washes being paramount by way of this will offer everything you want and more by way of investment profile and return. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit about something that we've seen most recently. So Mr. IPO was absolutely monumentous for yeah. the industry. A recent announcement that I would argue as a similar level of magnitude is Driven's directionality by yeah. company announcements and recent earnings. 
Yeah, and it wasn't, uh, it just didn't happen overnight. I mean, I think they've been, it's been like a slow leak, right, if you will, over the last couple quarters with the, the earnings because it was always, you know, they were always presenting things on a consolidated basis, right? And for the people that didn't go look into the car wash segment, you would have been shocked when you heard this announcement. But I think it was something that we saw coming, right? And it saw coming with good reason, right? Because, you know, that's what happens, right? When you get too excited, you're in a hot market, you're more inclined to overpay to keep up with everyone else. But you're also assuming that everyone else has a sound thesis. And that's where you get into trouble, right? And John Michael, it's so easy. It is so easy to point fingers, right? And just to be clear for all of our listeners out there, again, Mr. has done more for this industry than anybody else. Definitely. Undeniably. And Driven, this has nothing to do with Driven as a people, as people, as a corporate culture, no. as an organization. You know, it, what we are not trying to do is trying to be the outside party pointing fingers. My goodness, is these are huge achievements that these companies have been able to produce. And they're wonderful people. Anybody who's dealt with any of these companies will realize that, as is the case with 99% of yeah. car wash industry participants. Awesome people. However, the reason I bring up Driven is if Mr.'s IPO resulted and its subsequent trading resulted in potentially some group thick around, to your point, John Michael, shifting towards Greenfields rather than M&A, yeah. which the precursor and the impetus underlying all of this was that of valuations and the price yeah. you know, to go ahead and play in that ballpark, what does Driven's announcement about closing sites have if you were to extrapolate the same level of group thing to the industry at large? It would it would signal a, a downturn, right? I don't know. I think it's a conversation, and, and for listeners out there, you know, there, there's no objectively correct answer to this, but this is a discussion worth having, both yeah. with those around you, with other industry leaders, with your advisors, whatever it may be, because this is... Uh, this is still an unknown, and I would argue that one could say maybe it doesn't mean that it's a downturn of the industry. I don't think it's so much that, but rather it's going to be the almost vindictive, righteous bifurcation of those who are in solid financial profiles and states yeah. versus those that were maybe more myopically focused on site count building, empire growing, and at all other costs, right, growing yeah. as fast as possible. Well, I, I think, too, it's important to note that, you know, it's easy to sit here and say this person made a mistake and they made a mistake. I mean, nobody's done this before, right? It's not like there's a precedent or a formula where you can say, man, you're an idiot. Just follow what you know what I mean? There's no guide, right? So it's not that they got it wrong. It's just that you have to pick the right strategy that works for you. And I think that's where, you know, you can kind of be led astray as if you keep looking, you know, looking to the guy left, looking to the guy right for the answer. I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think you need to look internally and figure out what you're really good at and build a strategy that makes sense, right? And I think that's where a lot of times people fall victim is because it's just, like you said, right? They'd rather not make the wrong decision than the right one. And if they say, well, they did it and it worked, we did it and it didn't work, it's, you know, you wash your hands and it, it, that's the easy out, right? And again, it's not, nobody's at fault here. It's sort of a, it's an easy mistake that, I mean, you know, I could have made the same mistake in that position, right? Because it's, you know, Again, nobody's done it before. It's easy to make a decision when you see everybody else doing it. You just think it's the right thing to do. Sure. It's always easier. Always. So there's a ton of topics that we have to dive deeper into in later episodes regarding this, and that's going to include things such as what does the closing of sites and the returning of keys or the offering of leases at discounted rates, what does this have in terms of implications for the industry? Yeah. Right? As well as... Uh, what did M&A objectively look like in the car wash industry in 2023? And we're going to be delving into those for our listeners into other episodes of ours as we move forward. 
If there are any you want us to prioritize or get out sooner than later, please do let us know. We appreciate it and it helps us tremendously in making sure that we're providing value and content that is of most interest to our viewers. And for this episode, we're gonna we're gonna call it here, guys. This is Harry Caruso from Car Wash Advisory and John Michael Timbura. We look forward to the next time around.